there are some Bible scholars who allege that the Old Testament has no doctrine of the resurrection of the body. That's not quite true, though there are only a few places where the resurrection from the dead is mentioned in the Old Testament. One of them is Daniel chapter 12, the first three verses. I'm going to invite Tom Zietzma forward to read the first three verses of Daniel 12. Yes, the Bible reading this morning is from Daniel chapter 12, the first three verses. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you very much, Tom. I now invite you, if you have Bibles, to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't, you can read the text as it is projected above me. 1 Corinthians 15, Pastor Greg and I are, of course, uh, doing a sermon series on 1 Corinthians 15 titled Resurrection Hope, and the title for the message this morning is Body. Resurrection Hope will be considering the body in particular, 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll read from verse 35 to the end of verse 49. First Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and the stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. 
The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. This is the word of the Lord. Christianity, according to C.S. Lewis, is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness. Almost the only religion that celebrates the human body, and that yet you and I this morning know that the body is also the source of great unhappiness and the source of great suffering. Because we have to endure genetic defects and diseases and sicknesses and injuries and even death itself. The body is a temple says Matthew Lee Anderson, but the temple is in ruins. Is it the case that we should love our bodies? Well, Pastor Greg and I, in the course of this sermon series, have been saying that in the ancient world, people had a very dim view of the body. It was the case, even in Corinth among the Christians, that some were not troubled by sleeping with a prostitute, because that activity was reduced to something merely bodily, and the body was just something that we were going to dispose of in the end. And Pastor Greg and I have both uh, reminded you of what happened when the Apostle Paul preached at the Areopagus in Athens in Acts 17. He preached about the resurrection from the dead, and some scoffed, many scoffed, because it wasn't good news to the people in Athens that they would receive their bodies back. The bodies are the source of suffering, of anguish, of evil. And they were saying to the Apostle Paul, why would we ever want our bodies back? In the ancient world, many people were looking forward to death precisely because their souls would finally be released from the body, which was a mere prison. You should know this morning that the ancients weren't the last people in history to mock the resurrection of the dead. There was a famous American lawyer, an orator, and writer by the name of Roger Ingersoll, a 20th century writer. His father was a pastor and in the course of his ministry was mistreated by people. And so Roger Ingersoll determined from a very young age, he wasn't going to be a Christian and spent most of his life protesting the claims of Christianity, and he wrote, he delivered a very memorable lecture in which he mocked this idea that our bodies buried in the ground will one day be raised, and here's what he wrote. Does anyone believe that who has the courage to think for himself? Here is a man, for instance, that weighs 20 pounds and gets sick and dies weighing 120. How much will he weigh in the morning of the resurrection? 
Here is a cannibal who eats another man. And we know that the atoms you eat go into your body and become part of you. After the cannibal has eaten the missionary and appropriated his atoms to himself and then dies, to whom will the atoms belong in the morning of the resurrection? He goes on to argue it has been demonstrated, insofar as logic can demonstrate anything, that there is no creation and no destruction in nature. That's the first law of thermodynamics, isn't it? Nothing can be created or destroyed. Matter cannot be created or destroyed. It has been demonstrated again and again that the atoms in us have been in millions of other beings, have grown in the forest and in the grass, have blossomed in the flowers, and been in the metals. To whom will the atoms belong in the morning of the resurrection? Will we have, the morning of the resurrection, the atoms that we presently have? Well, it's a very misleading question, because if you know a little bit about the science of the human body, you know that the atoms of our body are constantly changing. And we, for example, get new skin every month. I used to have white skin, now I have brown skin. You can see it clearly in me, right? That's not the explanation. We get a new liver, apparently, every six weeks. We get a new covering for our stomach, a new lining every five days. Even our bones are changing constantly so that every five years, all of the atoms in our body will have been replaced. There isn't an atom you have in your body now that you had five years ago. Isn't that significant? But even if we recognize that our atoms are constantly changing and that it's kind of a meaningless question to ask who has ownership of the atoms on the morning of the resurrection, I think we still have questions about the resurrection. And what kind of bodies we'll have when Jesus returns and the dead are raised? Will we have the bodies of babies or toddlers or adolescents or adults or elderly people? What exactly will that look like? The question that you have for me is, when you are raised, will you be bald? Or will you be plagued and burdened by the phenomenon of hair? We could pose more serious questions. What will the body of a child with Down syndrome look like in the resurrection? These are very real questions. They're good questions. And they're precisely the kind of questions that the Corinthians were asking in this very passage. Because in verse 35, the Apostle Paul says, someone will say, how will the dead be raised? With what bodies will they come? And that's the question that we want to answer this morning. And in answering the question, we want to use the answer that Paul provides in the text. And in so doing, we want to note two things. First of all, Paul gives us images of resurrection bodies. And then secondly, on the basis of those images, he proceeds to give instruction on the nature of resurrection bodies. But we want to begin with the images of resurrection bodies that Paul uses to illustrate the resurrection. And there are three sorts of images that he uses, the first of which is borrowed from the plant world, and that's what you encounter in the opening verses, beginning verse 35, 
But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish what you sow does not come up unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. In the world around us that God has created, he gives us many images of resurrection life. And in the plant world in particular, we can see this remarkable transformation of a seed into a plant. Now, when I was in elementary school, we had this very nice project, which I hope you still have in schools today, where we had to take a styrofoam cup, put dirt in it, and plant a seed, and then watch the seed emerge. Do you still do that today? The boys and girls are saying, no, Pastor Bill, we do not use styrofoam cups. We use paper cups. And God bless you, that seems like the right thing to do. But most of us, I don't think, some are exceptions. Most of us are not farmers. Many of us are not gardeners. We actually have very little experience planting things in the ground and seeing them arise. But it's a remarkable transformation. You put a seed in the ground, you bury it, it breaks apart, it decomposes much of it not visible to the eye, and then all of a sudden it sprouts, something emerges from the ground. And just in that transformation, there are three lessons for us to learn about the resurrection. The first of which is that death is the condition for resurrection. You cannot have a plant emerge from the ground unless you bury it in the soil, and you will not have a body raised from the dead unless it first dies. Death is the first part of a two-part sequence, and the worst part is not the last part. In order for us to be raised, we must die, and because we will be raised, we can die well. Death is the condition for resurrection. The second principle that we learn here is that there is continuity between the body that's buried and the body that is raised. If you plant an acorn, it doesn't sprout as a tulip. If you plant a tulip bulb, it doesn't sprout as an oak. There is continuity between the seed that is planted and the plant that arises. The DNA of the oak tree is in the acorn. The DNA of the tulip is in the tulip bulb. There's continuity between the one and the other, which is to say that when your bodies, once they've been buried in the ground, if Jesus does not return soon, will be raised up, and when they are raised, they will be your bodies and not somebody else's body. We're going to say in a moment they'll be very different from the bodies we have now, but you're not going to get somebody else's body or the body of some other creature that will be your body. Continuity between the body buried and the body raised. Thirdly, the third principle we learn just from the plant world is that the body that is raised is much more glorious than the body that is buried. You don't plant. You don't plant in the ground the plant that will appear. You don't put into the ground the oak tree. You don't put into the ground the tulip. 
but you put into the ground the acorn, and you bury into the ground the tulip bulb. And when there is the resurrection of the plant, it has the same DNA, but is much more glorious, much more impressive. I think what the Apostle Paul is saying here is don't worry so much about the mechanics of the resurrection, but look at the plant world, and already by observing the plant world, you can learn something about resurrection, something about how God works. Death is the condition for life. Two, there is continuity between the body buried and the body raised. And third, the body that is raised is far more glorious than the body that was buried. I wonder this morning what you think when you see a cemetery. I don't know how many of you are readers of history, but there was a group of Christians in the late 16th century, early 17th century, who wanted to purify the Church of England, and they were called the Puritans. And the Puritans were very fond of calling cemeteries God's acres or God's fields. And when they saw a row of tombstones, they would see it as a row of seeds planted in the ground, and one day those seeds would germinate into new life. Those dead bodies buried there in a row would come back to life in resurrection. Cemeteries as God's acres or God's fields. So, when Paul wants to explain the resurrection body, he goes, first of all, to the plant world and looks at the transformation from seed to plant. But then secondly, he goes to the animal world. And there he observed that, that God gives every animal a particular body suitable for its environment. So he doesn't give fish wings. He doesn't give birds gills. He gives birds wings and fish gills so fish can survive underwater and birds can fly in the air. The point is, what you have in creation is a rich variety of animal bodies, and all of these are perfectly suited for their environment. And Paul is saying you really shouldn't worry about what your body is going to look like or be like in the new creation. This is God's specialty. He can create all of these bodies for animals out of nothing. If you're worried about how your atoms are going to be constituted in the resurrection, please understand he creates atoms without atoms. He creates animals without atoms at all. This is his specialty. He knows how to give things, bodies, suited for their environment. Now, I don't know if you're like me and you like to watch nature documentaries like Planet Earth. Aren't those amazing? My family gets so tired of me watching animal documentary after animal documentary. And if you're like me and your family's getting after you for watching all these animal documentaries, here's what you need to say. Look, I'm learning theology. Because Paul is saying there's so much theology to learn from animal documentaries. God gave one animal the body of an elephant. To what animal did he give the body of an elephant? An elephant, right? And he gives the giraffe, the body of giraffe, just remarkable bodies, perfectly suited for their environments. And when we are raised, though we don't know what exactly this will look like or be like, 
God will bring all of that expertise that he has in creating this rich diversity of animal bodies out of nothing. He will bring those resources to create bodies perfectly suited for you and me in the new creation. Then thirdly, these are out of sequence, these pictures. How did I do that? Then thirdly, uh, he borrows images from the galactic world. First the plant world, then the animal world, then the galactic world. Because, well, it's one thing to imagine living on Earth or having a body that's suitable for water or for the sky, but what about in the atmosphere way up there, which is the mysterious realm in which many of us have never, well, none of us has ever, we don't have any astronauts in our church, none of us have ever been there. And yet, even in this mysterious galactic atmospheric realm, God has given things perfect bodies suited for their environment, the sun and the moon and the stars and their orbit in the galactic realm. But it's all making the same point. God has infinite resources to create bodies suited for their environments. And you don't need to worry about the mechanics of your resurrection. God is going to raise your body. It's going to be perfect for you, and it's going to be perfect for the new creation. I should have read that, those verses, shouldn't I? Verse 40. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, and the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, and the moon another, and the stars another, and the star differs from the star in splendor. So Paul is going to move now from these images of resurrection bodies to talk about the nature of resurrection bodies. And the point that he's going to focus on here in particular, we're at the next point, the, the point that he's going to focus on here in particular is on the discontinuity between our bodies now and the bodies that will be raised. And listen to what he says. This is verse 42. So will be with the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Paul contrasts the body that's buried in the ground with the body that will be raised. And I think we can all acknowledge the one part of that contrast. Because if you've ever seen a dead body, you will freely admit that this is a weak and perishable entity. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it is sown in dishonor, and the sense could be, based on the Greek word, that the body has lost its rights, because that word dishonor was sometimes used of people who lost their rights. Have you thought about your body as losing its rights to live in some sense? So that when the body ultimately dies, it has completely lost its rights. Here I think it's so important for us all to confront the reality of our mortality. Now, when you're young, you sometimes think you will live forever, and death is so far on the horizon, it doesn't occupy your mind, doesn't need to. You don't think about death. Do you know my last milestone birthday was 50 years old? 50 was the most traumatic of milestone birthdays, because when you turn 40, you're like, 
I'm probably approaching half of my lifetime. But when you turn 50, you realize you've lived most of your life. You are what people say is over the hill. You're on your way down. You're living until you turn 50 and then you're dying after that. Isn't that a grim idea? But you have to face your mortality. And it's good to do that when you're younger. Good to, to be at peace with the prospect of dying because you never know when the Lord will call you home. But your body is in some sense losing its rights. It lost its rights in Adam who fell into sin and, and death is the wages of sin. It's losing its rights. And eventually you will encounter weakness and death. Now, isn't this all terribly grim? You know, last night I was speaking to the international students we hosted here at Blessings, and I was talking about emotions, and I was saying that our emotions fundamentally are healthy and necessary and good, and we shouldn't be afraid of them. Because the emotion of fear, for example, indicates that something dangerous is looming. That's good. That's helpful. That can save us sometimes. The emotion of sadness indicates that something valuable is lost. That's also a good emotion. If someone close to you passed away and you had no grief, it would suggest that something wasn't right. But you grieve and you're sad when someone precious and someone valuable dies. The, anger, the emotion of anger itself is healthy. It's an indicator to us that something unjust has occurred. And again, if you encounter something unjust and you're not angry, it's a sign something is morally amiss with you. Fundamentally, all of these emotions, some of which we're terrified by, are good emotions at their very root. Fear, sadness, anger... But you and I recognize this morning that all of these emotions are also easily derailed and co-opted and distorted to paralyze us and to make us aggressive sometimes. And so one of the questions that I pose with our international student friends is how do we ensure that these very good emotions that we ought to welcome and cherish do not begin to distort how do we ensure that the very good emotion of sadness does not turn to despair? I want you to notice with me what the Apostle Paul says. What is sown as perishable will be raised as imperishable. And perhaps the more puzzling contrast, what is sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. What is now perishable, these Bodies prone to weakness and even to death, when raised, will no longer be prone to weakness and death. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Spiritual body does not mean non-physical body. It means a body thoroughly animated by the Holy Spirit to keep living and never to die. A body animated energized, resourced by the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Apostle Paul goes on to say, and with this he concludes. He says, 
Verse 44b, if there is a natural body, there, were, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As with the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we've been born of the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. And Paul goes back to the creation account, doesn't he? The creation of Adam out of dust. And he became, the text says, a living being. But you know, his life was lent to him by the Lord. He was a borrower of life. And eventually he had to return to dust. He was not created mortal, but with the possibility of mortality. And when he fell, he became mortal and had to give back the life that he borrowed. And if you're a human this morning, and I think that's true of all of us, we share this reality with Adam. Born of dust, we are lent life. Because we sinned in Adam and we sin on our own, we return to dust. But Paul, you'll notice with me this morning, doesn't conclude with Adam. He concludes with the Lord Jesus Christ who came from heaven. The origin of Jesus is immortal, the immortal life of heaven at the Father's side. His resurrection life cannot disintegrate into dust because it is from eternity. His resurrection life is founded on the immortality of the living God. He is not a borrower of life. He is the author of life, as Jesus himself says in John 15, like the Father, he has life in himself. Now, how can we prevent sadness from becoming despair? How can we have hope? I heard a wonderful definition of hope recently. I, I wonder if I can repeat it. That hope is the joyful expectation of the future based on past events that transforms the present. What a full definition and a good one of hope. Hope is a joyful expectation of the future based on past events that transforms the present. And I suppose that we might say this morning that one of the differences between hope and wishful thinking is that hope is grounded on past events in irreversible history, events that can't be undone. And one of those events is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. It has happened. The Bible provides ample evidence, witnesses, and so forth that it occurred. This is the great past event that anchors our joyful expectations. And Paul's point is, if you're joined to Christ by faith, you're one with him. And if he rose, it means that you're going to rise as well. As I'm sure Pastor Greg has been saying, he is the first fruits of the great resurrection harvest. If he rose and you are joined to him by faith, you're going to rise as well. 
that joyful expectation of the future grounded in the events of Christ's death and resurrection that ought to transform the present. And many of us have had to stand by the graveside of loved ones, haven't we? And in a moment, we're going to be praying for those who are grieving the loss of loved ones, grandparents and parents. And some of us have had the extraordinary pain of standing by the gravesides of children, and even of grandchildren, of nephews and nieces. Doesn't it make sense to despair in the face of such loss and such tragedy? I think what the Apostle Paul is teaching us in this chapter is so instructive. We need to think back to the plant world. Death is the condition of resurrection. The worst part is not the last part. Because the last part is the part where we are raised and our bodies are made imperishable, spiritual bodies, fully animated by the Spirit of God to live forever. But we can make this even more personal this morning, can't we? Are you prepared to face death yourself? Have you come to terms with your own mortality? You know, I'm told that if you have adult teeth, they never get better than when you first get them. And it's just a slow process of decay. People are shaking their heads. They can't believe I can be so grim from the pulpit. I can be on occasion. But already your teeth are dying, and if your teeth are dying, it's a sign that you're dying as well. What should prevent us from despairing that if there's anything good about this life, it will come to an end? Well, you don't need to fear death. Because the worst part, as I said, isn't the last part, and your body will be raised incorruptible. Now, as we conclude, do you wonder this morning what your resurrection body will be like? What will that constitution of atoms, whatever atoms, be? And Paul is saying, well, when you go through life, take note of the plant world. Notice that transformation from seed to plant, the continuity between the seed and the plant, the, how the plant is so much more glamorous than the seed. You can understand that much. And that much is true of you. But understand also that God is going to give you a body that's perfect for you. It's your body and it's perfectly suited for the new creation that you will inhabit with Jesus and with loved ones in Jesus that have departed before you. This is the way in which we prevent sadness over death from degenerating into despair, embracing the great hope of the resurrection about which the Bible teaches us and about which creation itself teaches us. Let's pray together. Our dear Lord, we thank you that you are the God of life, the living God who has 
life in himself. We are borrowers of life, and so we need desperately to be connected to the author of life. And we thank you that this connection is possible through the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who identified himself in the Gospels as the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in him, even though he or she dies, will live forever. We pray that this teaching of the resurrection would provide us hope, prevent despair, and would drive us into the arms of the Lord Jesus to trust him and to live as he wants us to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.